outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 403. And today, we're kicking off a new series in which we're diving deep into specific types of habitat with a roundtable of experts. And today, that's hill country habitat, and we're talking with Andy May, Joe Elsinger, and Justin Wright. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today we're kicking off a new series, and this series is all about getting into the nitty-gritty details of specific types of habitat across the country. If you were to look across the country, you can kind of bucket certain parts of you know the deer hunting world within these, these uh, I guess for lack of a better word, categories. You've got hill country, like what we're talking about today. You could say we've got agricultural land. You could say there's big woods habitat, there's swamps, there's mountains, there's open country. There's all these different types of ground we might spend our time hunting deer. And each one of these different locations and types can be found really in different parts of the country, but each of them requires a different set of ideas and skills and information, and and even hunting philosophies. And so what we're going to try to do over the next, I don't know how many weeks it's going to end up being, but we're going to get a collection of experts on these topics together to talk through all the different things they think about when it comes to these specific kinds of places we hunt. And this was inspired by my buddy Andy May. If you listen to the podcast, you know Andy. He's He's one of the very best deer hunters in the country. I'm convinced of that. And he does it all DIY, a lot of public land or private land by permission. And he, he is one of these guys who I frequently look to for inspiration or guidance. And, and the interesting thing is that he came to me with this idea saying, Hey man, I am trying to learn more. This is one of the best guys out there in the world saying, I'm trying to learn more. And the way he was trying to learn more was by pulling in these groups of people who he viewed as experts on these topics and picking their brain. And so we got to thinking, what if we did that, but instead of it just being, you know, on a phone by ourselves, what if we share that with everybody out there? What if we share that with all the deer hunters out there that are probably curious about the same thing? So I tasked Andy with coming up with the people he wants to hear from. 
the people that he views as being the most likely to teach him something new about each of these different habitat types. And then we set out to schedule these conversations and to get these groups of people together where each one of us can share our ideas and then bounce ideas off each other, maybe argue different perspectives, maybe agree, maybe not. Today, we're starting that. And today, as I mentioned, it's Hill Country. We've got Andy kind of leading the discussion. I'm sitting in as a, as a, I don't know, steering the bus as we go kind of character. And then we're also joined by Joe Elsinger and Justin Wright. And I have Andy introduce these guys here in a minute so you can learn more about why he views them as the right experts to talk about hill country hunting. But I, I just got to say, this is a riveting conversation. And yeah, I know when this episode's coming out, it's January. Uh, a lot of us are maybe taking a little time away from deer hunting, but now is the time to learn. Now is the time to be thinking. Now is the time to be planning for the next hunting season. And I think this conversation, if it does anything like what it did for me, it's going to give you that kick in the butt to jump right back into it. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that. So with all that out of the way, I will just uh, let you get right into it. I hope you enjoy it. And here we go with my conversation with Andy May, Joe Elsinger, and Justin Wright. All right, with me on the phone, we have got kind of the if you were if you're if you're a superhero fan, you like those Marvel movies, imagine the Avengers of the deer hunting world. We've got Andy May, Justin Wright, and Joe Elsinger on the phone with me. I might be you know that character if you if you've ever seen these movies, Samuel Jackson is the guy that uh, I don't even know what his name is in the movies, but he's just kind of the guy that says you do this. Uh, what do you think about this? And then he sits back in the office and lets them all do the fighting. That's kind of my role here tonight. <laughs> so, so what I want to do, um, and and rather than do the whole like introduction thing that we do on a lot of podcasts, I don't think I'm going to do that as normal because there's there's four of us and there's so much good stuff to talk about. Um, I want to begin with you, Andy, because you and I were having a conversation the other day. And the conversation is what sparked us doing this podcast. And I'd love to get you to explain that a little bit more. You were saying, I remember I was pacing back and forth in my living room as we were talking. You were stressing me out so much with what you were saying. Because you were, <laughs> you were saying, man, you know, I just feel like I, I've, I've never been more frustrated in a hunting season than I was this past year. And I'm thinking to myself, Andy, you had one of the most successful hunting seasons like any normal person could ever ask for. You killed three or four really impressive, mature whitetail bucks. You killed a giant mule deer. And still, you were sitting here focusing on, how can I get better? How can I learn more about this terrain? How could I figure out what to do in this kind of situation or this kind of situation? And you were telling me how you were you know, reinvigorated and just chomping at the bit to get better, to, to talk to more people, to get more ideas. And I, it was... It was, I don't know what it was. It was, it was ins maybe inspiring or maybe it made me hate you just a little bit more that you were going to get even better than you already are. And so what I, what I want you to do is, can you, can you explain like where that, can you explain your mindset after the season you just had and where you are now that has led you to pulling people like this together to have in-depth conversations? How, how did you get here, Andy? Why, why you think this way? Well, I think I kind of always, I've always had that mindset. I, I know I've mentioned it in a lot of podcasts is, you know, I think when I really think about my goal, you know, my main goal as, as a deer hunter is, um, I just want to, I would just want to become the best hunter that I can be. 
Um, and I always have, I've always had that real strong drive to learn and um, seek out information from guys that I think are more knowledgeable than me and uh, more skilled than me. Um, this year, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking anyone to feel sorry for me, but it's just how I feel. I, this year I, I did have some great success. I had some phenomenal hunts. Um, but I made some really key mistakes on some really big deer this year, um, that have really left a, a bad taste in my mouth. I, I take, I take, uh, failure pretty hard. I mean, the successes are great. Um, but when I fail at something that I did wrong or that I should have done that I could have done, man, those really stick with me. And, um, I don't know, I guess it's just the way I'm wired, but there was a couple, I don't know, just a couple of situations and hunts and, and times throughout the season where I just felt real frustrated. Um, you know, I had four great hunts, but uh, I hunted more than I ever did this year. And there was a lot of time in between those and around those where, you know, I felt, I don't know. I felt like I was really struggling and, um, just not, I wouldn't say lost, but I just, I, I felt like I, uh, wasn't on top of my game, I guess. And, and you know, he, none of us are going to be, you know, deadly a hundred percent of the time, but you know, it, it does get a little frustrating when the majority of your season, you feel like that. I haven't felt like that in, in quite a while. I certainly have moments, but I guess I came out of the season um, not liking that feeling. And you said it best. I just felt, um, I guess, re-energized to really, really uh, try to improve uh, some of these areas that I feel uh, I could improve in. Um, and one of the areas... Um, that I certainly feel competent in, but I wouldn't say my confidence is the highest, uh, is in hill country. Um, and I've been hunting more and more of that. I really like the Hills. I feel I'm, I feel like I'm maybe a little above average, but I, I know a couple of guys that I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're, two of the best hill country guys, um, in the country. I'm, I'm, I know there's guys out there that we don't know. Uh, I'm sure they're not going to agree with that, but I mean, I know deer and I know deer hunting and I know deer hunters and, and these guys are, uh, some of the best and they're not only some of the best deer hunters, they're just some of the best guys. Um, they're consistent. They're DIY guys like, like me. Um, they hunt a lot of pressured land. Um, I don't know. I just look up to them and we're lucky enough to have both those guys on here now. So, um, the first guy, uh, Joe Elsinger, um, a lot of people know Joe, he's been on a few podcasts. Um, he's kind of a legend on the hunting beast. Um, man, Joe is just, he's just one of those guys that when you hear about his season and the way he hunts, um, it kind of makes you feel like you don't know a whole lot. <laughs> um, he's just, he, he, his, his hunts are very detail oriented. They're almost, um, they almost, 
that he almost like engineers them in his mind with the way his setups are and the conditions. And he takes so many things into account. And I just really, uh, admire the way he hunts and the way he goes about his hunts because it's a, it's a little different than me. Um, we have some similarities, but, uh, he just, he just takes it to a whole new level. I think with his efficiency and I just, he, he's just a guy that I've always learned from and I've always, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to become friends with him and keep in contact with him. And I'm just really thankful for that. Cause I've learned a lot from him. Um, the other guy on, on the episode today is, uh, Justin Wright, who again, another hunting beast guy, um, man, probably one of the most deadly guys I know, um, a straight DIY hunter. And he just every year, um, he just kind of leaves me in awe with what he does on such limited time. Both these guys kind of like myself, maybe even more so definitely this year. Um, I mean, these are family guys. These are guys that, you know, don't hunt uh, big leases. Uh, they don't hunt, you know, big family farms. It's a, it's a mix of, you know, pressured private ground and, and public and, they travel around to different chunks and they're just as deadly as they come and they're super efficient. So they're, they're family men first. They're good guys first. They're humble, but on such limited time, they do things that just almost don't seem possible. And both of their specialties, I think they're probably deadly in just about any situation, but both their specialties are, are hill country. And I just feel real fortunate to have them on this episode so that we can all kind of dive into their minds a little bit and learn. Um, it should be a good one. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the same way. I'm, I'm excited. And these are uh, the three of you are all three folks who, who all of us can learn from me, especially. Um, I, I always feel like with Joe, he's, he's of all the different, maybe not everyone, but if I can look at a lot of different people's hunting styles and the way they go about things, I see the way that Joe approaches it. And his, his analytical mindset, it, it seems very much like what I want to be like, what I, what I try to get to, uh, but I inevitably fall into these circular, uh, circular arguments with myself that send me down different rabbit holes and, and one out of five times I pull it off. Right. But, uh, I feel like every time I get a chance to talk to you, it's going to, it's going to help me get a little bit closer to that, uh, goal destination. And, uh, and Justin, I'm excited that we finally get to talk. Uh, Andy has been talking to me about getting you on the podcast for a long time now, so I'm glad it's happening. And, um, and I, I'm going to kind of play, like I mentioned, I'm going to kind of sit in the background a little bit and, and maybe kind of play the audience member. I'll let Andy be the host. I'll let him drive the ship. He'll be the school bus driver, and I'm going to be the kid in the backseat of the bus, the kid that's – I'm not necessarily going to be looking out the back window waving at all the other cars, but I will <laughs> kind of let you guys – have this conversation because I know Andy's wanted to have these talks with you guys in more detail and I'm going to listen in and when I'm confused by something or if I hear something that I think other people might be wondering more about or if, if you really get my curiosity going I'll jump in um, but otherwise I, I want to kind of be a fly in the wall and just sit here sit here in the circle of legends and see what we can get into so Andy let's let's scratch your itch 
where do you want to start? Where, what are you dying to know from these guys to begin this conversation about Hill Country? All right. Well, let's just start with something that's kind of pretty basic. Um, this is this is what I do when I'm going into a new piece of Hill Country. When I'm looking at the topo maps, um, I look for um, ridge systems. I, I call them dynamic ridge systems. I don't know if that's uh, the right term, but I look for ridge systems that have a lot of terrain features a lot of points jutting off in different directions um saddles benches the more terrain and the more dynamic it is the better um and those are the ridge systems that i'm kind of drawn to and i i tend to stay away from the ones that are more long um less points maybe you know maybe just off that main ridge maybe just one or two you know secondary points and i guess i've never really been told that that's a good or bad thing but i wanted to get your guys opinions on that approach um or, and maybe what uh, if you could dive into what what you look for if you're starting from scratch you're going to a whole new piece of hill country and uh and what you look for so let's start with you joe yeah thanks andy um first off th- thanks mark for having us back on um noise could say that for justin uh too this should be a good conversation, but yeah, you're, you're definitely, uh, feel flattered by your, your guys' descriptions. Um, maybe we can dive into some of the failures I've had this year. Cause I, I had some pretty good luck, but I have to admit that when, um, Andy described his season as, you know, kind of focusing on what went wrong, I have that similar mindset where I, I royally screwed up a couple of times and, and it bugs the heck out of me. So definitely does not go right all the time or even most of the time for me. So, um, but anyway, specific to this, so yeah, um, all else being equal and it really is, uh, the more rugged, the ground, the better, in my opinion, it's just, you know, the, the more terrain features you have, the better, um, in hill country. Um, the, you know, but you don't get that often. You can't, you know, um, you might have really, you might be hunting properties that are really steep and rugged, rugged, or you might be hunting properties that have just gentle rolling hills that funnel the deer way less aggressively. Um, and then, um, you know, in some of the gentle hills, you have to deal with you know, really the the deer move more according to cover than terrain. Um, there's kind of a there's kind of a point where you know when it becomes a, uh, the hills become so steep that the deer have to work going up and down them. That's when the terrain seems to be the dominant um, factor in how deer move. And then when it's a little flatter, I, I couldn't tell you a slope or I couldn't tell you an elevation. Um, it's kind of case by case. But you should think of it like that, where the flatter hills, um, you know, you kind of have to focus more on the cover and transition, et cetera. Um, and the steeper stuff, transition can still be important, but terrain becomes the the driving factor for how they move um so yeah i like points and saddles and um you know crow's feet ridges where a whole bunch of points come together that's one of the key areas that i would focus on you know when you have a whole bunch of secondary points come together that's often a really killer area um if the cover is reasonably good uh, conducive for you know betting on those ends of those points um 
benches are another thing and benches are a thing that um i think our predecessors long ago kind of realized that wildlife travel on benches and bed on benches but i don't hear much discussion about benches um in current hunting community and they're kind of hard to spot on a tapo map you know they're just where the contours get spaced out a little bit on a side hill so you have contours that are all stacked tight you know you show the steep slope and they space out and they get tight again well it's a bench um and deer bet on them and they travel on them so the bigger the hills they really like those benches um some of the you know three four hundred foot bluffs that i uh hunt and they they i really spot those benches and doesn't seem like you know the secret's out now <laughs> talking about it but doesn't seem like very many hunters try to hunt those the wind can be dicey but there's ways to you know um pull off hunts on those benches so yeah it's, i guess that's a quick summary of where um how, how i kind of look at it um yeah they, basically similar to you andy that the, the more ter- more terrain features the better usually um that really funnel deer so yeah it's interesting um that's what i look for now um but my first year hunting iowa um i was hunting hill country and i was on a ridge that had uh it was a crp uh field on top so it had an opening yeah. on top that was um good cover so you probably went and hunted the inside corner right I did. Yeah. But this yeah. ridge, this ridge was very long. Um, didn't have a lot of points, uh, coming off of it. So it was kind of, a, you know, it lacked a lot of features, but on the end of that long point, um, uh, just kind of a long narrow point without much going on was to this day, the biggest typical buck, um, I've ever seen in Iowa. And yeah. it was interesting, you know, I mean, like uh, now I don't, draw a lot of attention to those types of ridges uh for some reason but i did see a real big but i didn't see a lot of deer but i did see a real big buck yep. bedded on the end of that yeah and length uh, the length of a ridge system so if you're rut hunting other times a year you know deer aren't moving as far but rut um those long ridges are mega funnels you know, deer bucks are running up and down. So if you've got a ridge that a system that's half a mile long or more, and you can get in the middle of it, um, that's even if you're not real close to bedding, if it's peak rut and you know, you've got decent deer population, you can have, you know, just that's one of those things going blind. You could have a great hunt. I agree. Um, mm-hmm. so the, um, particularly I would say during the rut, you know, um, mm-hmm. outside of the rut, you kind of have to look at more of the micro features. Sure. Um, exactly where they're betting, where they're feeding. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, Justin, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I would piggyback kind of off of what both of you guys said. Um, Joe was talking about the long ridges, and I know that's something before I think you mentioned, uh, Andy, that you know you kind of look past those. Um, I have seen a lot of uh, deer on the right. I've seen a lot of uh, cruising on the sides of those. Um, you know, kind of going back and forth, uh, checking different doe groups and stuff, you know, on the ends of those bridges and stuff. So I would agree with that. But for me, I wrote, I've mainly hunted more rolling hills. Um, I've got into a little bit of the steeper stuff, the bluff country here in the past few years. And it does seem like, uh, kind of what Joe said, it seems like the deer are a little more, or 
predictable based on like the terrain, you know, terrain features kind of funnel them a little more. But the rolling hills for me, it's about diversity. I mean, I have to find diversity, you know, multiple different uh, cover edges coming together because um, they really seem to, kind of like Joe said, they really seem to stick to the cover more so than kind of the terrain funnel on them. And I'll be honest, I think in the in the rolling hills, the winds and stuff, are, they just seem to be a little bit more difficult because of the thermals don't have quite as strong a play, you know, as they do in like the steeper terrain. Um, so me, yeah, it, it's diversity. Um, I do have to say, I've seen a lot of, uh, I've kicked a lot of bucks up, I've killed a lot of bucks in these bowl-shaped ridges. These ridges, it's like, so it'd be like a ridge, like in the shape of a C, and it has several secondary points that jut down off of it, offering a buck, you know, several different um, points to bet on based on the winds and stuff. And I have seen a ton of bucks betting in those. Mm-hmm. That's really one thing that I that I really look for. Yeah, I've just had some really good Me luck too. with the, with those. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you guys kind of hit on it, though. You know, pretty much. Uh, Pretty much the same. I mean, the you know the saddles and and all that. The points, uh, you know, that's all things I look for. But probably the first thing would be the bulls. I don't know. I've just had a lot of luck uh, finding bucks bedded in those. Can, all right. Well, that's very hard to hunt. <laughs> yeah. Let's. Uh, I, I was going to ask about bulls a little later, but since we're on that and we're talking about bucks bedding, um. Let's talk about like we, you know, you hear about uh, the leeward side of the ridge, you know, on the points and, and whatnot, and and that's really the majority of what you hear about as far as mature bucks bedding. So we, we know that's one of the features. And now Justin and Joe, you mentioned, you know, the, these bowls, and I've seen that as well. Um, I've also seen them down low, and I've also seen them uh, bed just right at the uh, right at the head of a drainage on a really thick hillside, like right at the, right where that drainage comes to, uh, where it dies off at the top there, below the ridge top, but at the head of the drainage. So can you guys, Justin, let's start with you. Why don't you go through some of the, uh, all the types of features that you have seen mature bucks bet on and besides just points. I've seen a bed down low too. Um, a lot of times, I don't know, if that's more based on, so like here, for instance, and the majority of the stuff I hunt, a lot of your access would be from the tops of these ridges. Um, and then guys will, you know, they'll go out a certain distance and then they'll, they'll jut down off this ridge and they'll hunt that. Well, I don't know if this, you know, if the deer is going to survive there, they're going to have to do something to get away from that pressure. So they're going to drop down a little bit lower. Um, I don't know about actually bedding in the bottom, but um, I have seen them bed a lot lower on the, you know, like the points, uh, even I'm talking 10 feet from the bottom, you know, and again, this is more so in your, your rolling hills. Um, I've seen a bed, like you said, Andy, I've seen a bed at the head of uh, drainage systems. I, and I have seen them bed on just like a bench on the side, you know, especially in the late season. It seems like when uh, the weather's cool and they're trying to get some sun, you know, bed on them south facing slopes and getting out of the wind um, man i have seen them bed of course on points you know that's the majority of the time on the secondary point um is where you'll find them 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, even in the open, you know, hardwoods, if you got some blowdowns, treetops and stuff, it looks rather open, but you've got a little bit of cover there, and I've seen a bed on that, and it could even be up on the very top of a ridge, even. Um, I've seen a bed in a lot of a lot of weird places. I know that, you know, I think everybody believes that, you know, flip to the points, and I, I would say that's probably where they fed the majority of the time, but I have I've seen them in a lot of weird and I'll jump in real quick and ask you a follow-up, Justin. Uh, has it been pretty consistent that they use those features in relation to a certain wind direction? Like Andy mentioned, typically you'll hear about the leeward side of a ridge. Um, how do you think about wind when trying to predict you know, where these bucks might be bedded in that kind of terrain? Yes and no. Um, that makes sense. So... <laughs> I've seen the majority of the time, yes, I would say they're betting on, you know, the leeward side uh, based on wind direction and all that. But I have seen them, like, take a bowl. Um, This is kind of hard to explain. But, like, take a bowl and say the wind is coming over on, like, the east side of that bowl. And the buck may be bedded on, uh, like, the eastern side of the you know, the other ridge system, like as the bowl shaped around on the other side of it, but the wind will kind of come up and go, once you get into them, a lot of times you still find that the, the wind is doing something kind of funny. So it would like roll over that, that one ridge and cause like a swirling effect to where that deer can pretty much, I mean, anything around him, he's going to, he's going to catch you, you know, he's going to get a whiff of you at some point there. But I have seen a bed on windward slope. Um, you know, it's not always, the wind over the back thing, I think sometimes visual, uh, comes into play, uh, you know, so in the winter times and stuff, you know, they they like to get in the sun, so they'll, they'll get wherever they can do that. Um, but I do believe no matter what, they have some sort of an advantage. So they're not just going to lay down in the spot, you know, that they're vulnerable in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think a lot of times like that, like I said, on the windward slope, I think the wind, a lot of times if you get right in those beds, you'll, you'll start to feel the wind doing some funny things as it swirls around or, you know, whatever. So. Makes sense. So, Joe, you do you uh, see some of those same things? Yeah. Uh, Justin hit on a lot of the good points. Um, I expand on a, uh, a thing or two that I've seen. Um, I think um, bucks, as they, the lower they bed, the less uh, aligned they are to, you know, the, the uh, leeward slopes. Um, so up high, yeah, most of the time it seems like they, they are bedding on the leeward sides, leeward point um, knobs and stuff. As they bed down lower, um, you're really seeing a break in that correlation. Um, not, you see it sometimes, but not as often. Um, and for reference, for everybody's reference, you know, I, some people have heard this before, but I run a lot of trail cameras. Um, I'm not hunting on my cameras. I'm doing it just to learn more about deer. So, um, I leave cameras soaking spots for, you know, three, four months and then look at that, look at the observations, uh, and correlate them with weather data. Um, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, wind, temperature, um, pressure, humidity, um, cloud cover, uh, time of year, uh, all that jazz. 
and um, I see a ton of correlations. And sometimes I don't I don't see them. You know, the, the deer move and bed very consistent to the wind up high down low. There's less of that consistency. Um, and I agree with Justin. Um, I see bucks bedding all the time, kind of on low points or low benches, so they can kind of look out across the bottom um, or a bowl. Um, they love bedding around those perimeter of those bowls. Um, and you know, the, those, those are a kind of thermal hub, I think. Uh, see, so a lot of times you'll see the rubs or scrapes and they, uh, bucks drop, they really like to drop down off, the off their bed down through that bowl and then kind of up the other side. Um, I see that a lot. And, um, the one thing I would add there is, um, when you're talking bottom, um, when a bottom gets to a certain size, it seems like that's when bucks start bedding down in it and not just bucks, but, uh, those two. Um, and I don't know, it's hundred, couple hundred yards apart, maybe, uh, yards across, um, when deer start feeling more secure and bedding down in that bottom. Um, and I think it's a matter of, they don't feel as trapped. It might be a little claustrophobic if it's real tight and constricted, the narrow, um, bottom, but a bigger bottom. Then they bed down in that cover, and that's when they start treating it like, you know, a bigger, um, you know, swamp or um, marsh, um, even though it might not be marshy or swampy, but they're bedding out in that bigger bottom. Um, so I'd bring that up. That's, that's when I see, I see them actually bed down in there when it gets a little bigger. You so know, have you have you seen, Joe, any... You both, Justin and Joe, you both mentioned many different types of spots within a hill country setting that they could be bedded. As I'm listening to this, one of the first things I'm wondering is, well, how the hell do I figure out what they're using now? Right? They could be there and they could be there and they could be here. And if I was walking onto a neat piece of ground, I would just be swimming in all these different ideas. Um, I, one of the first things I'm thinking, if I was trying to filter this down and make sense of it, I would say, okay, well, would the time of year change where they'd be bedded? Do you see any correlation between time of the season, so early season versus the rut versus late season or anything like that, that would give you guidance as to how to pick your most likely bedding spots? Is it, you know... In the early season, when there's lots of leaf cover, they're more likely to be bedded high. And when it's late season, they're more likely to bed lower. I don't know. Is there anything like that that comes to mind? Yeah, uh, I I definitely have. Um, so you know, in hill country, I I would say general rule of thumb, majority of deer are going to be bedded up high. But there are a lot of like like it's not a big majority; it's a slight majority. Um, so time of year is a big uh, thing. And um, within that time of year, the biggest factor is, in my opinion, comfort. Besides hunting pressure, I didn't touch hunting pressure, but comfort. Um, late season, deer are going to favor those subtle exposures. Um, so they're going to be, I don't know that they're going to be up high, but they're going to be up high enough so they can get sun. They're not going to be necessarily down in thick cover unless there's no sun. If it's a blizzard, that's one of my favorite times to hunt down in a bottom when a blizzard rolls through in hill country because all those deer drop down to the bottom to get out of the wind and the snow. And I've had some crazy good hunts, just seeing tons and tons of deer, um, bucks, hazen does in, in, in December, you know, like, like weird stuff, um, in the middle of a blizzard, you know, um, down low. And 
early season, um, they, if it's hot out, they favor those cool north slopes um, or, or bottoms where they might be, the bottom might be a little tighter um, or has water in it and they'll bed close to the water, a little cooler down there. So um, comfort's a big thing. And then hunting pressure is another big variable. And that uh, has a big impact. Um, I've said it before, but um, when the pressure's, you know, when access is up high, that pushes deer down. When access is down low, it pushes deer up. Um, it's wherever the hunters um, are the thickest, the deer are going to be in the other elevation, basically. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Justin, would you add anything to, to that question about how time of year might impact where they choose to bed? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Joe's spot on there. Um, I will say, I think Joe hunts, and I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe, but I think you hunt um, some tend to hunt more rugged terrain, um, deeper yep. rugged terrain. In the hills here, like I said, with the rolling hills, um, I will see them bed lower. Um, and a lot, I think a lot of that is due to, you know, access being from the top and stuff. But even in the early season and stuff, I see them bedding down lower. Um, and I don't know if it is, you know, you drop down off in there and it, it generally it's a lot cooler down there. And the winds in the in the rolling hills will stay. I don't want to say stay consistent because they're hardly ever consistent, but you'll feel them down in there. The wind will still be at the back, you know, even further down in, because um, it's more you know of a gradual slope uh, versus like a deep drop. Um, but yeah, I would say, I mean, Joe, I would I would agree with all that. Uh, I do see them bedding higher. It seems in the later season, and I think that's you know get up high and get some sun. Um, and on the, generally, it seems like late season, you can pretty much for the most part, anyways, from what I see, it seems like they're betting more wind based. And I think it's a lot of times to get out of the wind, you know, to block the wind. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, he pretty much hit on, on everything. There. Yeah. And Justin, when you say you're, you're seeing them bed lower, um, is that like, say halfway down the hill or yeah yeah i don't want to down i would say a half about halfway down uh joe generally it kind of depends on too you know where the cover's at um even in the early season sometimes if it's a you know a rather open area it still seems like they'll you know they favor the cover so if it's a color covers you know on the bottom third even i've seen them bet down in there um yeah but uh yeah, I, I would say, you know, that one third, that was one thing that I think a lot of guys around here, you know, that was preached a lot um, on the hunting beast. Uh, and I agree with it in most cases, but I believe that, uh, you know, in the rolling hills, there's exceptions to that. And they're, the deer just kind of bed. I mean, if you get a stronger wind day, they're bedding lower. Light and variable winds, it seems like they do bed a little bit higher. Um, there's just so many variables so situational with that um but yeah yep. i want to um circle back around to the bulls real quick because uh justin you and i had this conversation and you told me that you see some of your your biggest most mature deer bed in those bowls and they seem almost bulletproof and i after you said that i started thinking back because most of my hill country has been in in ohio 
Iowa, um, and a little bit in Indiana and then in Kentucky. And, and there was an early season several years ago where, um, I was hunting a pretty nice buck and he was bedded in that same type of terrain feature, like a bull. And I couldn't get in there without getting busted. Um, cause I, I just could not get a consistent wind. And I got, I went in there twice and got busted twice, but Joe, you, I asked you about that and you have found a, a unique, uh, circumstance or a set of conditions that you feel like you can hunt that effectively. Yeah. Um, some of the time, and then I'll, I'll conclude this with a story about how it didn't work this year on me, <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, so I see that too. And I think it's because of the popularity, um, the spreading popularity of, you know, hill country hunting and people focusing on leeward slope, the military crest, the classic places where deer do move. But once the pressure's on up on the ridges, then, you know, like I've said, I've seen that push down lower. And to Justice's point, you know, I would stress to everybody listening, you know, think about how steep your hills are and if they're more rolling versus steep enough that a deer doesn't want to travel up and down it very easily um you know that really changes how they use it and if they can bed you know the entire slope versus they could you know only top and bottom it's so steep uh that's that's a big difference um so down in those bowls um i have found there's two kind of two circumstances um that i found consistent wins and i'm i'm a fanatic about this like in the off season i'm carrying milkweed with me scouting and sometimes if like i don't carry all the time but i'll carry a couple sticks and i'll try to get up in a tree and i'll drop milkweed like in the spring um and just see what it does um and i'll take note of those weather conditions and you know try to figure out if i can have a consistent air current down low uh so i've done a lot of experimenting um and I like situations where there's almost no wind, and so the predominant activity is just thermals. Um, that's a little tricky because, of course, you got a thermal switch. Um, but say uh, even like a cool overcast day, you don't have much for rising thermals, um, and the thermal switch might be happening pretty early in the afternoon or late in the morning. Um, and you can get like a consistent. I really like those consistent downdrafts you know, early in the morning and down at night. And I set up right next to usually a big bowl. It usually has got a ditch or something. And if I set up right next to that ditch, that's getting pulled down into the ditch fairly, fairly well. Um, and you can have a safe hunt that way. Um, and the other circumstance is the opposite is a screaming wind over the hill over top. And this is usually for those deeper hills. And, um, this is something I, I don't know, it, it might be my favorite tactic. Get a screaming wi- wind over a ridge uh, coming across the ridge, and you're, you're on the leeward side, except I'm way down at the bottom on the leeward side um, or wherever the deer are down low. Um, and the air is getting pulled back up that leeward side. So it's actually, um, it's a vacuum effect. That's what's causing it. It's not a rising thermal. It's a vacuum effect. Um, and if I get a 20 plus mile an hour sustained wind over the ridge, I know I'm going to usually have a consistent updraft. Um, the tricky thing there is wind dies down a lot of time, you know, first light, last light, 
there's a big buck around, that's bad because then it starts to get swirly. But if you have that consistent wind, I've had situations where I have a consistent updraft and I'm dropping milkweed and it's going right over my head all the time. Like it's impossible for a deer to smell me unless it's flying, you know? Um, and I love those situations because deer, they think they're in this bulletproof situation down low where they're used to smelling everything and I can get in there. Um, and I've killed a couple of big bucks doing that. Mm. Um, so, you know, that sounds all well good and it, and it works. I've got proof, but this year I was after a big old buck and, um, big, uh, nine point typical, uh, split G twos. And, uh, um, he loved to bed on a low, low benches around this big bowl, uh, real rugged terrain. Um, and he loved to bed down there. Well, the bowl was kind of oriented Northwest, Southeast. Uh, so with the Northwest wind, uh, it was kind of, I was going for a light Northwest wind and a falling thermal. Those were aligned going down into the bowl. And, um, I set up right by the ditch. Um, he'd been there last year. This is a circumstance. He was there last year. I checked my camera once. I knew he was on camera. Um, I knew he was around this year. He was alive. I figured he'd been in the same spot. He was six years old this year, I estimated. And mid-October, um, it was second week of October, I think. Um, first or second count of the season. Um, and I set up, got it. I snuck in there up the ditch, crawl up a tree. Perfect. And that wily old deer, he just dropped down into the bowl and he dropped down into the ditch, which I never thought he would have about 60 yards downwind. And I saw him, you know, and then he, he, he was downwind to me, but he was up on the, the rim of the ditch. And I did not think he couldn't smell me. My scent was getting pulled down into this ditch. This ditch was fairly big. It was probably 30 feet across. And then he dropped down to the ditch and boom, up came his head. And that was it. You know, so he always murdered me. Now, I had the last laugh because I put my brother down there a few weeks later, not in the exact stop, but nearby, and um, he killed him in early November. Um, so he's dead. But, um, you know, it was it's tricky. Hunting low is tricky. Hunting hills in general is tricky with the air currents, but hunting low is really tricky. So yeah. be prepared to screw up. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Yeah, Justin, have you ever have you ever attempted uh, anything or, or found a, a way to successfully hunt those those bulls? Well, like in the rolling hills and stuff, I, I understand what Joe's saying, and I can see that in the steeper terrain. Um, and it may still you may still get that in certain situations with you know the more gently rolling hills. But um, from my experience, I, it's just really hard to get any kind of a consistent wind in there. Um, I did find kind of a unique situation a few years ago, and uh, it actually ended up being the uh, the biggest buck that I've ever put an arrow through. Um, what this situation was, there was a couple guys that had found some sign down in this hole, and they were they basically set up camp. <laughs> they put a ladder stand down on the bottom. They put a, uh, a hang on on the side of this ridge, and I found it that. That spring before that, I went in there to check it out. You know, cause I do a lot of kind of in-season scouting, checking areas, and um, looking for fresh sign in and around uh, the perimeters of these bedding areas. But I knew that buck was in there. It was a great bedding area. Um, and once I seen all that sign, I seen these ribbons and everything, I just kind of left it alone. Well, then fast forward to that 
following spring, I went back in there and noticed the spine there. The buck was back in there. You see the bed was being used. So the following year, I I was waiting for, so let's see how this, it, it set up like the head of the, the bowl. So it's kind of a C-shaped, you know, bowl. The head of the bowl would have been facing to the west. Um, the buck was bedding kind of on the southern side of the slope with the wind coming over his back. And I waited on a day, it was 85 degrees. It was um, early October and the wind was blowing out of the southwest. Well, it was blowing kind of over the head of this bowl and then down into the bowl, blowing kind of with it out toward the mouth of it. And um, I set up on basically on the mouth of this bowl. As this buck dropped down off this point, he was swinging around, swinging down low of that bowl because there was still a stand <clears throat> in there, and I'm confident that deer was checking that area out. For one, I think most of the time you could see him. In the early season, it was rather thick down in there. So I think he would just safely drop down off this. Well, I was set up on the northern side, and as he swung around, got a whiff, everything was clear, nobody was down on the bottom. He carried on about his weight, and he came on up, got an arrow in. Most of the time on the bowls for me, I have to find either how they're entering or exiting the bowl in order to get an opportunity. And a lot of times, I'll be honest, it has to be like on a front or something like that. It seems like these big old deer, they just drop down off in them things and they kind of hang up in there in the evenings. And man, by the time they make it out of them, you're not getting a shot at it. It's too early or they dip into them, you know, way too early in the morning. Um, I will say if you could find, if you know how that deer's entering that and you can manipulate the wind, you know, get blowing or uh, get just down you know, to where your thermals will be falling, dropping on further off to where he can't get it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had my butt kicked more times than I've been successful in the polls. I'll say that. Hmm. Yeah, J- Justin, you're, um, most of the time when you're seeing a buck bedded around the side of a bull, are you seeing it use them like that? It sounds like you are. Like, when they get up, they're dropping down in. You know, yes. whether they're going across or at least, you know, so they're using it. That's why they're there. So, right. In my right. opinion. Yeah. And I, like you said earlier, a lot of times down in those bottoms, or at least from my experience, I find a lot of signs, a lot of scrapes, a lot of rubs. And that's what drew the attention to those guys that set up camp down yeah. there. I mean, yeah. They set up right over this stuff in that buck, you know, obviously it's bedding up on that side and he can watch that, watch yeah. as they enter or hear them or whatever he does. Yeah, but yeah, I see the same thing. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more 
at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Justin, you mentioned, sorry Andy, I'll jump in really quick. You had mentioned uh, that one of the better ways you've found to actually hunt those spots is to find where they're entering and exiting the bowl. Cause that's a little bit safer for you. Um, for someone listening who doesn't exactly know how to pinpoint that entrance or exit, could you describe what it is you're looking for to help you determine that? Yeah, this is how they're getting in and out. Most of the time saddle to be quite honest with you. Um, if there's a slight little saddle that kind of dips off into that bowl, Gosh, a lot of times, if that deer is going to cross that in daylight hours, it's going to be through something like that. Something where, um, you know, he's safe and secure, not going to be skylined. Um, and then a lot of times, too, you know, there's there may not be sign right on top of the ridge, as far as like a rub or a scrape or something like that. But um, you can generally find sign kind of leading in or out of those bowls, you know, on the, on the ridge there. Um, but yeah, I, to be honest, I, a lot of them, I've seen dip through saddles and it may not be a big, obvious saddle that shows up on a, a topo map. Sometimes you just have to get out there and, and scout it and you'll just see a, a slight little dip in the, uh, in the ridge there. And that's where that buck will dip through. Yep. For my yep. That's, that's some, one of my favorite, uh, sad, like saddles are important but the bigger ones do attract hunters pretty easily. So like you mentioned, the ones when you find one that might drop, you know, five feet or 10 feet yeah. from the ridge. Yeah. You can't see it on a topo until you're walking through it and you're like, Oh, I, you know, only my head sticking out, you know, along the ridge. <laughs> those are, those can be lethal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that hunt example that you just gave Justin remind me of something. Um, those guys were kind of set up in the bottom there where, uh, where there was some sign down there. And I remember seeing that you sent me that map and topo, which was really cool to see how that hunt unfolded by the way. But I remember the, it was that, I remember it too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That bottom was relatively tight. Um, and I know, I remember, um, you know, on the beast, you know, the, the, the consensus was, you know, don't hunt the bottoms, stay out of the bottoms. And it was, it was ironic because every time I read that, uh, or when I was reading that, there was actually, um, 
a spot in Iowa that um, I had killed two bucks um, two years or uh, two two times that I hunted it in a row when I drew the tag, and then my my buddy killed one out of the same stand as a couple trees over, but same area, and it was in a bottom. But what was unique about this bottom, and, and Joe, you touched about uh, on this a little bit ago, but it was it was a wide bottom. Um, so what I loved about this spot was, um, it was where several points dropped down into the same direction. So there was like four or five points that were kind of all pointed down into this bottom pointed in the, uh, the, the general same area pointed in this general same direction. And at the bottom, the bottom was actually like a, a, like an overgrown, like set aside field. And I would hunt that, that bottom ran east and west. So anytime I had a, uh, a west wind, I could get basically where all those points dumped down and converge. There was a lot of travel coming up and down those points and crisscrossing. And I would get right at the bottom where all those travel routes converged with that west wind but i would be just on the east side of where most of the crisscrossing was going and man it was like it, it honestly it, it literally would be like one sit and, I, and i'm not super picky like i you know i'm coming from michigan it's an out-of-state trip back then i would have two or three days to hunt so i was shooting the first you know good buck that came by but it, it was every time i had that wind and it was in november Man, it, the amount of deer I saw and bucks I saw cruising down through that area, and I don't remember ever getting really busted as long as I had that consistent wind. But um, I mean, it was it was quick, you know. I mean, I'm, yeah. if you're going to wait for a five six year old buck, you know, 150 60 inches or something, might be a different story. But I was able to get an arrow in a, a good buck really quickly in that type of scenario. Have you have you guys ever found anything like that? Yeah, I guess first question for you, Andy, where the bucks moving in like uh, that you've seen down there moving consistently, you know, with that wind, like were they using it in a consistent way or are they moving in a consistent direction? Did you find or? Well, you, it just seemed like, honestly, it was, uh, it was always in that kind of November 4th through the 9th time frame. It just seemed like a lot of cruising going on to be honest with you it looked like yeah. they were kind of more doing like point a to point b but they were using these yeah. points as travel routes and they were crossing that bottom um kind of in that you know, there, there was like probably a 75 yard radius where all those those ridges dumped down all those points dumped down and there was tons and tons of buck sign right there in the bottom scrapes yeah. all around the edge it was a set aside field and there was a lot of young, uh, you know, young tree growth down there, like sapling sized trees. And it was just shredded. I mean, it had everything you'd want as far as, as buck sign. Um, I mean, does would come down off and there'd be, you know, bucks following the doe. It was just like constant action. It was just one of those spots. It was just dynamite. But I always remembered that because everybody was saying never hunt the bottoms. But I think, and I, we've talked about this a little bit, it's, it's those steep bottoms that are really tough to hunt. You get, a, you get yep. one that has a decent width on it. Yep. If you hunt it with the right wind, you can hunt it effectively. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I got a question for you, Andy on that. Was that, 
and you may have mentioned this, was it rather steep terrain around there or was it more like gently rolling hills or? I would say it's more probably what you're used to. Um, okay. The only, the only place I've hunted um, that I think might uh, be comparable to what a lot of the stuff Joe hunts is, is Southern Ohio and then one spot in Kentucky. And uh, so most, most of my hill country, I think, has been more rolling to you know, medium-sized hills, not a ton of real steep, steep country. Yeah, I've got an example like that, like you were just mentioning. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually a spot that me and my dad have both killed. Uh, we've actually killed a few bucks out of, and it's a wide bottom. The bottom itself is probably, gosh, 150 yards wide or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and we have found some very, very consistent cruising. And it's it's very similar to what you're saying. There's a lot of points that kind of jut right down into this bottom. And uh, it's just a... Uh, I don't know. It's just always held a lot of deer. There is a a field kind of out from it, um, and the deer kind of, you know, kind of hug that, kind of like an inside corner. Um, but they jut down through there, and we've had a lot of success right down in that bottom on, uh, you know, specific wind stuff. So yeah, yeah, I have seen. It's, Joe, I think you you've described that. Uh, you call that a thermal hub, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's um, thermal hub. So. I do believe deer are using that to their scent advantage, Mm -hmm. but it is also the reason these hubs, um, they're also a terrain hub too. So Mm -hmm. it's not just scent, but when you have both those line up, when it's the shortest distance from A to B and a deer, a buck can go through there and scent a lot of those surrounding points. He can, know if there's a doe up there or i i really think they use it for their defense too i think they can check if there's hunters on the surrounding ridges um by Mm -hmm. dropping down in those areas so you know they check what's around them and it's fastest and you know most secure point from point a to point b that's when they're that's when those super hot spots like you guys described um i've seen a few of those too and then, um, often it's like one specific or maybe two specific winds. Usually it's one specific wind. You can get mm-hmm. a safe hunt down there. Yes. So it's like, you just have to sit, you know, and you might not get that wind one, one, one season, you know, I've right. been there where I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, a deer's in the area or, you know, you know, it's a hot spot that time of year. You don't have the wind. Don't even try it down low, you know? Yeah, um, I'm sure you guys have been there too. And we, you know, you push it, and it never, never seems to work when you push it with the wind. So, or you get um, that wind you know, and you can't hunt that yeah. night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want to. Two things. Number one, um, I've seen this exact same thing you're describing too in in my southern Ohio spots. The one spot I've hunted a decent bit of of hill country, and. And that exact thing, it seems like there'll be just the certain angle that you'll get that one consistent wind if you've got it. Um, but I just want to make one simple observation for people that are listening um, to just kind of simplify a little bit. A lot of the examples you guys have all pointed to have all related to a turkey foot, as you described it earlier, Joe, but in two different versions. There's the, you could say there's the turkey foot pointing down 
which would be where all the, the fingers are pointing down. And that's a situation that you were talking about earlier today, Joe, when you're talking about hunting up top where those ridges and there's multiple ridges that come up to, uh, yep. uh, to a pinch point of sorts where you would be at the top of those and all these ridges come up to it. So you've got the, the downward facing turkey foot, you want to hunt high. And then there's the inverted turkey foot where the ridges and the points are coming down to the bottom. And that's when you'd want to hunt low in these spots that you're all describing, assuming you can get the right wind. So, yep. so just a, a simple observation, look for those turkey foot type situations and take note. Is it the upward facing or the downward facing? And that's going to help you determine where that sweet spot of activity will likely be if you can get the wind right. That's yep. a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very good. It's, it's exact, it's the same feature. It's just exactly how you put it, you know, whether it's the top of the ridges or the bottom that make that kind of hand shape, you know, pattern. You know. Yeah. So I got a question here and I'm, I'm guessing, or I guess I'm hoping that the answers varied a little bit, but maybe they won't. But if I took you guys down to an area you're not familiar with, Southern Ohio, Kentucky, uh, down in Indiana, hill country, something you had never hunted before. And you had one week during bow season to get an arrow and a mature buck. What, just give me your kind of overall, uh, game plan, your strategy from the second you get boots on the ground, you leave your vehicle to the day you shoot that deer. And I would want, I want two examples. I want one where let's call it just early season, you know, mid October, and then let's do the same thing more pre-rut, uh, those last couple days of October into the first, you know, week and a half of November. So let's, let's start with you, Justin. And, and while you're okay. thinking about your answer, Justin, I just got to say, isn't this guy damn good at hosting? I feel like Andy's going to steal my job here. He's, <laughs> he's got some good questions here. Is, he's good. Wired to hunt now. Sponsored by Andy Mack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take it away, Justin. Okay. So we talked about points. We talked about areas that, you know, bucks typically bed. Um, early season. For me and Andy, I know you know this, and Joe, I think, too. And I'm probably more aggressive than most of your guys in the hills. Um, even on stuff that I know, I'm one of those guys that's not afraid to go bump deer up. Uh, and I do that a lot. And I have killed a lot of my bucks by doing that and getting back in there, say, a couple days later. And as both, you know, Joe and Andy know, I've killed several of them coming right back in that same day. Um, so that's going to be my go-to if I've got a short period of time that I can go on a new piece of ground that, you know, that I've never been on, never stepped foot on, man, I'm going aggressive. I'm going right forward where these deer bed and I'm going to bump them up and I'm going to look the area over. And then based on what I find from there, then I'll, I'll hunt according, you know, to, to what I think my best uh, chance at getting a crack at that deer is. Um, and it may be that same day. Um, I'm not opposed to bumping a deer up, depending on how I spook him. If if I get him up, you know, and and he didn't get my win, I feel confident in that. I've seen a lot of them turn and come right back in there or swing downwind of it, you know. Um, 
and try to figure out what that was that bumped them up. Um, so that would be kind of what I'm doing. And I'm obviously, I'm going to look, you know, for the, for the thicker stuff. If there's any type of you know, ag nearby, I'm probably going to look at the secondary points and stuff that shut off the main ridge nearby that, um, bowls, you know, things that we had mentioned. Hey, Justin, real, real quick. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but no, you're fine. Go ahead. The, the, this bump and dump thing. And we've talked about this and you, you pull this off more than anyone I know and you purposely do it, which I think is just so cool. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong here. Like, uh, I would assume, you know, if you're going to purposefully do that, you're, you're going to, you're going to try to do this fairly early in the day, obviously when they're bedded. So you're going to wait probably past, you know, mid morning, at least maybe going around lunchtime, maybe, you know, one, one o'clock, so 11 to one o'clock, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And obviously you're playing the wind, your wind's in your favor. Um, and you have a, a, an area that you're targeting based on wind direction and the terrain features that you've looked at on the map. And you're going right. to kind of slip through there and, and you're trying to, you're trying to bump this deer like a soft bump. You don't want this deer to smell you. Um, if he sees you or hears you, not a big deal. Um, that's kind of the goal, but it's, it, you want a soft bump, not a violent bump or, you know, you damn near step on him or right. you don't want him to, to wind you. And then once he's gone, you're quickly analyzing the situation and estimating where you think that deer is going to circle back downwind to scent check that bed and come back. And you've had great luck even on the same day of deer doing that. And I also would assume if you sat there that, that afternoon and he didn't come back, you'd probably give it one more sit in the morning. Is it, would that be an accurate statement? That would be accurate. Maybe even another shot, you know, the, the following day, because I have seen to where, and again, this is going to be wind. I mean, say you jump him off of a, a point, you know, on a Northwest wind or whatever, and the next day it's going to be South. Well, that could change things up. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Andy, you're, you're absolutely correct. I'm not trying to just blow him completely out of the area. Ideally, you want them just to, to kind of jump up, you know, and just kind of trot off because I've seen that. And that's when I have had the best luck at them coming right back in that, that same day. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it seems like they hear me more so than, than seeing and obviously not smelling me. Um, they'll just kind of, just kind of, you know, shut off like a deer that's, that's spooked, but not, uh, they're not running out of the country type thing. And I've seen it so often to where they'll, they will, they'll just loop around and they'll try to figure out what that was. I had one um, that I killed a couple of years ago, literally came right back in on the exact trail that I walked into when I bumped him and he was smelling me green. And I, I'm sure that deer thought that that, whatever it was, just like a coyote, if they run through and they bump them up, they probably circle around and do the same thing. Come right back in there. That since you know an hour old now. That whatever it was is yeah. long gone. They slip right back into the bedding area. Um, the only problem for him was I was still in there. <laughs> I was yeah. still in there, and I was actually looking it over to to pick a tree for the following day. And that hunt really opened my eye to it on you know killing them on the same day. But uh, I have done it, and then you know came back the following day or two days later, or even five days later, and killed them coming out of there. Um, wow. so that'd be my, my go-to in the early season. 
Um, for the pre rut, I'm I'm probably gonna do the same thing. Only I'm gonna be paying them more attention to where like the doe pockets are, the doe groups are, and then look at some sign, you know, in and around them. Maybe trying to even bump up some does, trying to figure out exactly where they're laying down at, and then looking, you know, downwind of those areas and trying to, you know, find setups uh, accordingly to that. Yes, would be my my go to. There's a, uh, I want to tell this story real quick because it just, it just, it's uh, the epitome of the type of hunter you are, Justin. And I don't, I don't even know if this was hill country. You can uh, allude to that, but that's more to do with your style. But you hunted uh, a different state this year. I'm not going to dive into it, but it's a, it's actually a, a, a spot that I told you about. Mm-hmm. And, um, just so happened that I knew several hunters that were hunting that same piece of public land while you were there, including one of the very best, John Eberhardt, um, and several other, uh, very accomplished hunters. And I don't think he was there that long. Uh, but some of those guys were there darn near two weeks. Um, and it sounded like it was some tough hunting, tons of pressure. And you are the only person out of all those people that pulled a deer out of there and you pulled an absolute giant out of there in just a few days. (laughs) And, uh, it was just incredible. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, but it, it, in, you know, you told that we talked about this hunt and you were on foot doing just exactly what you're talking about. Uh, a lot of the time kind of still hunting, Um, trying to get into, you know, where a a big buck was living. And if you needed to get him up on his feet and bump him, then so be it. Cause then now you know what you're hunting. But, uh, I just, I don't know. I just did that. I did actually kick that deer. I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure Andy that I kicked that deer up. I didn't, I didn't actually see him take off. I just, I heard him. I got up there to the bed. I looked it over. There was plenty of sign in there and, uh, I think I killed him two days later coming back into that same general area. That thing yeah. was just a giant. <laughs> just a giant. Thank yeah, you. This, <laughs> this is, uh, Justin is so good at that. I would, I, Andy said it, but just they hear it from me too. Like, this is where he, sh- like, I, I've, I've never seen anything like it. You know, that, that just fair woodsmanship mm-hmm. um, of understanding the deer. Um, you mentioned something, Justin, that I wanted to kind of call out. And that's, you said, you know, when they get bumped and they come back, they don't pay as much attention to your sign, your, your ground scent. And I think that's true. And so a big buck moving through the woods, it's human scent. He's on the move. He, he locks up, he's worried, but he gets bumped out of somewhere. The deer 99% places, they live in North America, they're running into humans, you know, they're getting bumped up by people. So they get bumped up. And if he gets bumped up, maybe he knew you were a hunter, a, a human. Um, I do agree. Like once, if they smell you, the odds go way down. But, um, I, I think that, um, the, uh, um, I, I think that, the deer, if they get bumped up and come back, 
they knew somebody was walking through there. So like, oh, yep, he was there two hours ago, and then he dies because Justin's st- still standing there, you know? <laughs> so um, that's a bit, like, I think they're less worried about ground scent under those specific circumstances, you know? I'm not going to say, I mean, they might still lock up, but they seem to, if they think it's just somebody moving through, they're less worried, and they'll, and they'll be worried coming back. They'll probably sneak, try to sneak back in, but it's not like them being on the move and then hitting ground scent, that's when they freak out. You know, Very you're already on the move. Yeah. 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 Spot on with that, Joe. I actually got to watch that deer from probably a good, and I'm talking about a deer a few years ago. Um, I got to watch him that I, like I said, I bumped him on the same day. He made a loop and came back in and I got him. But I watched him come in into the bed from a good, I don't know, 80, 90 yards. You know, and he just like a, a big buck moves through the woods. I mean, he, without a doubt, he had his nose to the ground. He was smelling where I was. Take a few steps, he'd stop, and he'd just stand there. And, you know, he'd look around. And, I mean, he did that all the way, and it took him forever to get in there. And uh, to say I held it together would <laughs> would be a lie. I was shaking like a leaf as he was coming back in. But, but uh, it worked out, and that really opened my eyes to that. Uh, like I said, I wasn't. I wasn't there on purpose to do that that day. I was uh, looking the area over, but it just so happened that I caught, you know, I caught movement out of the corner of my eye and, um, and the rest was history. You know, it worked out. So, but uh, I can tell you a lot of stories too, that where, you know, I've jumped the deer up and I, you know, I set up or whatever, they, they would come back and they did. So, yeah, um, you know, I've got a, of course it doesn't always work. I got a couple follow-up questions on that. Um, Number one, we hear about this bump and dump tactic, and it makes sense, but it seems like the real crux, like the real trick that separates your average Joe from the guy like you who's actually getting it done, and, and that wasn't a knock on you, Joe. You're no average Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. well, yeah, I freely admit I'm not really good at this tactic. Like I don't have a lot of confidence in it. Well, then, well, then um, I'll and say, it, and it's not because it doesn't work, you know. So feel feel free to use my name. Right, I so... believe it works. It's just Justin's great at this. So then what separates, what separates you from average Joe here on the line is that this, (laughs) the trick seems to be in picking the right tree for the setup. Like that seems to be the really tricky spot is figuring out the way to set up and anticipating how that buck's going to come back in, anticipating how he'll use the wind. Um, that seems just really tricky. There seems like a really narrow line. You've got to walk between being in the right place to be close to being in range of whatever that trail or where that bed is, et cetera, et cetera. But then also anticipating how he's reacting to this bump he had. So question number one is I'd love more detail on how you're thinking through where you're going to set up. And then question number two is bump and dumps like this in hill country. Is that any different than in flatter terrain? I'm, I'm imagining that, on some of these types of points or betting up on high on bulls, these bucks, it's going to be harder to get close to a buck like that without them seeing you from a distance because of their, the way they use terrain to their advantage. It just seems harder. I'm thinking it would be harder to pull off a bump and dump without a buck bumping way sooner than you would ever be able to get close enough to know where he was bedded. So just curious if there's anything when it comes to those types of hilly situations where it's just tough to get close enough to one, uh, to know where that bed was. So question one and two, sorry to give you a double, double whammy there, but uh, 
give me the real details on that setup and your thought process first. Well, in the hills, I, I think you're correct. It is definitely hard to get close enough to see them because I think a lot of times they they get out of there before you are uh, you know aware of them even being there. Um, but then again, I've also had you know big bucks really hold tight in area and and scare the heck out of you when they jump up, you know, because you're right next to them or whatever. Um, but in the hills, I mean, with the terrain and everything, I'm usually once I jump one. And I feel like that, you know, he didn't get my wind um, and he didn't take off. He didn't bust off out of there like he was scared to death. I'm usually looking at the terrain around um, that deer. I feel like it's going to try to get downwind of that. So if it's, you know, say if it's a bowl, uh, you know, he's probably going to try to use that other side of the ridge to, to come back in, you know, well out of sight or anything. But it's 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 hard to explain because it's situational based on the terrain around there. Um, I had a buddy and I think I sent this to you, Andy, that did it. He went in and, and was setting up on a deer and he bumped him. And the ridge, it was kind of like the point that this deer was betting on. Well, then the, the main ridge, you know, say extends back to the south and then there was, it kind of made a 90 right there and looped around down to another point that dropped down. on. So, I told him, I said, well, I would split back on that ridge back there, you know, that the wind was blowing back in that direction. And uh, sure enough, that, that deer just, you know, he dropped down off of that point, and he circled around, and he started coming up this other point that would have probably been about, a, I don't know, 100 yards, maybe 80 to 100 yards uh, distance between there. And uh, unfortunately, he, you know, the shot didn't go so well. He missed it, but the deer did do, he came back. I mean, he was circling back around. And I'm confident he was circling back around to, you know, to figure out what that was. So the terrain would be um, the number one thing for me. I'm looking at terrain and how I think that deer will get downwind to that position that I was at, downwind of his bed, and how he'll loop back. And sure, I don't always get it right. You know, there's there's definitely times where, like I said, I don't see him come back. And I'm sure maybe they looped a little further out than I, you know, anticipated. But uh and what was your second question there, Mark, on that? Well, well yeah, so so one part one, you kind of answered both of them together. Um, okay. <laughs> so it kind of worked out. But if you have anything else when it comes to the thought process on picking the tree and or unique aspects in the hills, and, and you kind of combined them. But if there's anything else as far as picking the right tree in that situation, I'll take it. Otherwise, otherwise, Andy, you can jump in. Well, I picking the tree and stuff, um, actually a couple of them I've killed off the ground i did it this year um early season i jumped one up actually i jumped this deer up right next to a road and he crossed that he ran out across the road which really shocked me that he went that direction but he crossed the road so i looked at you know i looked at it um and this was i mean it's still country but this was kind of down off in a bottom in a wide bottom and i looked it over and i knew about 250 yards down, uh, what it was was a block of timber, kind of like a triangular-shaped block of timber. At the tip of that was a tree line that went down and split this field. And it was kind of like in a swale. And then that went down and deep. And, you know, say if you would go left, it would left, let off to some bigger timber. To the right was some persimmon tree. Well, I felt pretty confident that that deer was, you know, heading that direction. 
the sign leading out of that um, pretty much told the story. So after I jumped in and I was looking over that timber, it's about an acre and a half size. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to cover all that if he came back in. And as you got toward the tip of that, the winds kind of got funky up there. So I just looked that situation over. I thought my best crack would be to move out of there, kind of walk off in a direction like going back toward the road in case he did try to, you know, follow me out. And uh, I walked out that direction and I kind of made a loop in the field and dumped back in, dumped down off kind of in this little valley. and set up down there thinking that deer would probably, because I bumped him, I think, at 3 in the afternoon, and that's when it's getting dark at like 6.30, almost 7. And he it, it worked out. He came back in, um, came down through there, and just carried on about his normal, you know, normal evening, thinking I was long gone. And that was probably a two-and-a-half to three-hour stretch in between that time. So... As far as picking the right tree, I don't know. I just have to look the situation over. Uh, it's kind of a gut feeling, instinctual type thing, I guess. You know, just being in that situation because they're all they're all so different. It's hard to. I mean, if I had you know an example in front of me or something, I could you know maybe go about answering that a little better. But yeah, no, that that's helpful. Um, okay, I think I think. Andy, unless you want to correct me unless I'm wrong here, I think we need to hear Joe now answer your example yeah. as far as the the new property in southern Ohio or Kentucky, right? That's right, Joe. So, yep, brand yeah. new hill country ground. Uh, your strategy from start to finish, early season and then rut. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, um, going in brand new, um, I mean, I, I freely admit it, it's distinctly different from Justin. Um, I mean, he, he's, he, as you guys can tell for the last 10, 15 minutes, he's next level in that, um, you know, just kind of snooping around, bumping up. Um, that's, that's incredible. Um, he's, he's a hunter. I want to be when I grow up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, in those circumstances. Um, so I like, I like to be efficient with my time. So, um, I do a lot of scouting. I pay attention to tracks, you know, I pay attention to hot sign and food sources and all that, but really just to be efficient, if I'm say, you know, this, it's a great big piece of property, you know, it's maybe thousands of acres. Um, and I'm mapping out, I'm, I'm mapping out like potential bedding, um, based on like stem count and points, um, terrain features, um, funnels and, and, you know, like the, the Turkey feet, um, that we talked about, um, like on a GPS and, and I'm mapping all that out ahead of time. So I can go in and basically I'm scouting too. And I want to be, like I said, efficient with my time. I'm going to swing a big loop through the area. And I'm, uh, my goal is to cover as much ground as efficiently as possible. And a lot of times, like, I'll have my bow with me, you know, and sticks and tree. I use a tree saddle. Um, so um, it's light and mobile. And if I hit a spot where I think it's worth setting up, you know, say, you know, acorns are falling early season. Um, and there's, you know, a, a fresh rubber too and, you know, big tracks and it's, you know, just up the ridge from a bunch of secondary points. 
um, you know, yeah, obviously I'll look, be looking for a setup or I might be just, you know, I've, um, I'm probably a little heavier handed than Justin. I'm, I don't think I quite have quite as touch about open stop and set up and I'll come through, I'll just, you know, run through it, but still the mentality of like, if I bump something, um, or even if I bump it hard, I might come back there, you know, a few days later. Um, and I, and I have, um, you know, done setting up, had deer come back. I fully admit I have not killed one doing that. I've come real close a couple of times, but I haven't, <laughs> um, I won't, I won't lie to you. Um, and it's, it's, and it's more just, you know, being good at it, you know, with practice, you get better at it. Um, so I like to have a real, as much as, you know, I like cyber scouting, whatever. Um, I don't have high confidence until I put boots on the ground and walk through an area. That's kind of my angle. Um, so I'll, like I said, if it might be 5,000 acres that I'm dealing with. I'll, I'll put in eight miles, you know, in one day and just swing a big loop. And then I feel a lot more comfortable about, okay, you know, where are the deer distributed in that area? Where's the food right now? You know, that varies so much early season. Um, and it can depend, you know, are the white oaks fallen? Are the red oaks fallen? Are there any white oaks? You know, are there any acorns whatsoever? Are they, you know, I mean, persimmons, you know, like Justin mentioned, um, there's different, um, you know, early seasons about what's hot right now. It's not last week. It's not next week. You really got to be, you know, they, they, things shift really rapidly. Um, and then, you know, my favorite time period is like the pre-rut into the early rut phases. Um, I just love hunting that time period. Bucks are moving more, but they're still really consistent. Um, you, you know, not too erratic movement, just following does and heat before any does come into or hardly any does come into stress. So then, then it's more, okay, where are the doe groups and the bucks are nearby. They're not necessarily chasing or cruising yet, but the bucks are going to keep tabs on those doe groups. So that's where it really, I'll be focusing more on those, like, um, you know, the, the high turkey feet or the low turkey feet, as we talked about in that pre-rut period, the thermal hubs, um, on those spots because usually um like those turkey seeds they a lot of times have does bedded around there too and that's when the butt you know that week build up into the rut that's when a lot of times you start seeing bucks get visible in those areas where other times of the year they may not be anywhere around there um because they don't need to you know they don't care about does so um that's kind of how i tackle it it's um probably more um just focusing on strategy and preparation because that's kind of my style, you know, and that that's what I would stress, you know, Justin's that doesn't have, you know, he's got the best style for him, not necessarily going to be a fit, great fit for anybody else. I've got the best, I'm, you know, working on the best style for me, you know? So if you want to be the best tenor you can be, find something that works for you. Don't try to copy something else. Somebody else, I you know, you can get ideas from other, yeah, you can get, get ideas from somebody else. You know, it, I, you know, I listen to Justin, you know, Andy, you, Mark, um, we listen to each other, but you know, um, I do think some people kind of get hung up on, Oh, you know, I'm doing what 
so-and-so is doing. Yeah, you know, that you, you spend, you know, you kind of waste spinning your wheels if you just just kind of replicate. Don't try to replicate, you know. No, I find it works for you. Yeah, I love that you guys answered that so differently. And I was, uh, I kind of thought you might. Um, but, you know, you guys are both, you go, both playing to your strengths. Like, Joe, it's ex- exactly how I thought you would answer that. Um, your, your hunts are very well thought out and very strategic and um a lot of times you you anticipate exactly what is going to happen even with your deer drives i mean everything is so exact and i know it doesn't play out perfectly every time but it plays out just the way you think enough for you to be successful on um, multiple big bucks a year on very limited time and it just impresses me so much and then and justin like um, you know, Joe said it best, man, just on the fly woodsmanship skills and more of that aggressive instinctual approach. Um, so cool. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like, I feel like I do a little bit of both of those styles, but I don't feel as seasoned as either of you in, in your style at all. Um, and that's why I love, I just love talking to you guys cause I learned so much. And there's a couple of things after talking about that i want to expand on one is is food in the hills but we'll get to that in a second but so one of my things when i typically when i go to hill country it's been every time actually it's been during the rut i've never went early season um and i've always focused on terrain features um you know thinking bucks are on the move um, I'm going to play the odds and, and try to get in these terrain funnels, these terrain features that should funnel movement. Um, if assuming the bucks are moving. So I usually wait for a good weather pattern, the right time of year, the right conditions for that to happen. And I've had great luck with that, but you know, obviously I kill, I don't always kill the biggest deer in the woods in that, in that, uh, you know, in that type of situation. So I guess my question for both of you is during the rut do you do that same thing um or do you still focus on some of these known buck bedding areas or where where this deer has been living most of the year i know i know dan has talked about that he's still even during the rut he's still bouncing around to some of those um those known buck bedding areas so i was curious to see what you guys do for me like when i go to an unfamiliar area i don't know what buck is there so i don't even know where a specific buck is living and Joe, I know you are really keen into really tuned into where a lot of these bucks you're hunting are, are living. So just curious during the rut, is it one strategy more than the other terrain versus bedding or is it more does? What do you think? Uh, let's go with Joe first. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, it depends of course. Um, but I would probably, so I'm, you're right. Like I'm, I'm fanatical, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I live in Iowa, majority of my hunting's in Iowa. Um, I'm able to hunt, even I'm, I'm on on a public land, you know, um, uh, I'm able to hunt deer for several years. You know, we've got a good age structure. Everybody knows that. So I can, you know, I cover a ton.
on the land to find these deer. They're not easy to find. They're not on every piece of public, but I can find, you know, five, six year old bucks. Um, and I can, you know, I, my goal is to detect that deer, even when it's, I spread myself so thin that I don't, um, I might, you know, I, I'll get a deer on trail camera. I never hunted that property. You know, I was like, oh, that's a nice four-year-old, you know? And yeah, hopefully I got him on camera, you know, in January. Um, um, and he made it to, you know, so he's going to be around next year. And maybe I'll get a t- couple of years of pictures. Um, and then I can really, and, and layer on scouting, spring scouting on top of that. Um, maybe a hunt or two after him. Like I get a couple of years of history with a deer and I really map out exactly how he's using that area. Mm-hmm. And almost always they're not entirely, we actually talked about this here earlier, but they're not entirely on a piece of public. Um, they're like, you're hunting a tiny little corner of the range. So you got like one opportunity or maybe a couple opportunities to kill that deer mm-hmm. where he's crossing public in daylight or he's bedded in one spot on public. So, um, so what I'm going at, I'm answering to answer your question a long way around. Um, I'm relying on that last year's history and if it's a rut. Um, usually it's this buck was cruising through this area in daylight the last year or the last couple of years. Um, and it might be to a doe bedding area. Um, I do target, I, uh, in the Hills, I tend to think the bucks shift bedding, um, into the rut. Most of them do. Um, so their bedding in the rut tends to be closer to doe bedding. Um, sometimes they're bedding even in what would otherwise be a doe bedding area. If it's, if it's around, they might be laying down in there. Um, but they're doing it where I knew they were doing it last year. And that's what I really key in on. Um, that's, that's what I, I just laser focus. I, I, I've got, a, um, probably a majority of my deer, um, that from multi-year history where I knew that buck, like, okay, my, like the last 10 days of October, is my time to kill this buck. I need mm. this wind direction. I'm hunting at that spot. And that's my chance. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so that's what I'm targeting. So it's not necessarily more doe bedding or more. It might be doe bedding. It might be a, just a buck cruising route. Um, you know, it might be a buck bedding, um, uh, spot. Um, it, it, that really depends, but it's, I'm detecting what it is well in advance. So, yeah. So a lot, a lot of it probably boils down to, uh, you know, your knowledge of the individual deer. Um, like when I travel, I don't, I don't have that. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with any type of mature buck, you know, regardless of what it is. I would say your strategy is rock solid. You know, you look, Mm -hmm. look at terrain, um, you look at doe bedding and it's really, um, those bucks are moving in between the doe bedding areas. If you're, if you time it right, mm-hmm. um, and it's not, you know, right in the middle, even if it's right in the middle of lockdown, they're still, you know, might be up looking for another hot doe, but, um, you know, you just need to, you want as many layers as possible. You know, you want, like we talked about those turkey feet, you know, um, and being a thermal hub and the shortest distance between a point that's what you need to key in on, you know, if you're not worried, you know, not worrying about deer history. And I know the mass, that's majority, like, that's what gets me super excited. Like I want to kill a buck that, you know, I've stalked and, you know, 
assassinate him basically um, yeah uh but that's not everybody's situation and that's when yeah you just you know you dial in on the the terrain to cover the does um yep yep justin uh i'm guessing it's probably a combination of uh, what joe said and what i do depending on your familiarity with with the deer in question would that be accurate yeah um so if we're talking a piece that I'm familiar with in the does and where they bed at, I think Joe touched on this earlier. So generally, I find myself trying to kill a buck that is bedded going private land. Well, you get into the rut, and they will move closer to the doe group. And I know, you know, from experience, I know generally where that's going to be, where the bucks tend to move in at mm-hmm. and bed up closer to them. So I kind of... I kind of base a lot of it on that, on the history, but if we're going off of, you know, something that I don't know, then yeah, it's going to be terrain. It's definitely going to be terrain. And if I can find a hot food source, like a, you know, say it's a year where there's low acorns or whatever, and I find a spot that's dropping those, I'm not opposed even in the rut to sit up there because that's going to draw all the does in and the bucks are going to come through there and check them out. So, you know, it's a, it's a variation of, uh, it, it depends on, I guess, if I have history with the property or talking something new or something I've wanted. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that leads me to, I know we're getting a little long here. I got just a couple more questions. This is this is awesome stuff. Acorns, uh, food in general, um, but specifically acorns. I'll admit that <laughs> this is, I'm pretty, man, pretty green when it comes to acorns um i mean obviously it's not hard to find red and white acorns it doesn't play a huge strategy for me personally around home um sometimes it it can but not not a lot um and i know in the hill country it can be everything so i just want to touch on how big of uh impact does that have on your strategy when it comes to to chasing these older deer so justin you and i talked about it a little bit so why why don't you start with that oh man it's you um finding those it depends on the year too some years you have them just it just seems like they're everywhere you don't find those those spots that the deer really congregate to i guess you know that really is a hot this term feed tree i've heard um but you know that's the best way to put it a feed tree that all the deer are really hitting so this year uh and we did not have acorns at all there was a few here and there when they were dropping it was just like that's where the deer were um but yeah it's huge um if you know where the bucks are bedding and you know and they're working for the ag they a lot of them will hang up on those those acorn trees um on the way to you know an ag field so yeah i mean it's huge it gives you at least an idea of where the deer are going to travel you know where he's kind of heading off to even if the if the ag's over here but there's you know acorns up on this ridge that you know isn't in the same direction he may head there first hang up and eat and you know work his way off down to the ag so yeah it's huge i mean they're huge so like if 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 uh one one thing I noticed down in Ohio is like bucks tend to have like you know, obviously they're they're a little 
their little core range. You know, it might encompass, you know, two or three ridges, maybe more, but I just noticed that I'd get pictures of them and see them repeatedly on, repeatedly on, you know, these two or three ridges, they got their little areas. So you're just looking for, like, if you're after a particular buck, you're just looking for that concentration of acorns in that, in that system. Cause like I've, I've always been, and I think it's, I think it's embedded me from hunting Michigan um, at all costs. Do not like let the deer know that you're even in the area. Um, I've never had good luck once a deer, once I've bumped a deer of mature buck, I, I've never had good luck even seeing that deer again. I've, I've told you that, uh, Justin. Um, so I, I, I tr- I'm trying to wrap my r- mind around more when I travel out of state that, you know, deer are very different and I'm, I'm starting to see that from state to state to state They're, they all behave and tolerate different things. Um, but like in hill country, let's say I'm, I'm trying to find that, that where the hot, like you said, hot feed tree or hot little area of acorns, man, you can cover a lot of ground. Cause there's a lot of these, uh, these pieces of hill country have oaks everywhere. And I was down in Southern Ohio for uh, new year's and I did some, uh, did some scouting down there and it was like, I walked a ton of ground and then I found fresh acorns, even on, on, uh, January 1st, fresh acorns on the ground. Um, but man, I had to, sh- I sure had to walk a lot to find that. And it's just like, it, it just, I just thought about all the deer that I must've just educated, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, right. going through that area. So that's something I struggle with. Um, as far as like looking for food, um, in the hill country and, and having to cover so much ground to look for that. So uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think on that? Well, like, are you talking, so you're, how familiar are you with that? I mean, do you know generally where the bucks are fedding at anyways? I mean, outside of even not even looking at the street, the food, I mean, do you know for the most part where, yeah, well, I, I guess I'm thinking, I'm thinking more in terms of areas that I'm not familiar with that I haven't hunted before because, you know, my plan is to hunt some new hill country. So I'm thinking more in terms of, in terms of that. So yeah, obviously, you know, when you, when you have an idea where these bucks are bedded and and where they're living, it's, it's easier to kind of work around that. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I would be looking for either or either trying to find where the, the deer is, you know, obviously it's betting at, or if I run into say an, a, you know, a white oak or something up on the top of a ridge and it just has a ton of deer sign around it. Well, if you can kind of work out on the perimeter of that, you know, for the most part, these bucks, even in early season, they're going to have some sign, you know, working toward it, coming in, mm. um, grapes and stuff. And uh, grapes and big tracks and scrapes and stuff. I mean, I've pulled the, I mean, I've killed, I've killed several bucks, um, just based off that alone, big track in a scrape coming through there, not even being a hundred percent sure, you know, where the, where the buck is betting at him. It's a gamble. Sometimes, sometimes you set up on it he may be coming through there at night, but I think the sign, especially early season. Yes. Early season. Right. Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They're, they're going to be close by. Yeah. Right. Right. That would be my, my kind of go-to. I would be looking for the sign 
on the perimeter of that tree working out toward it, you know, to where toward points or a pole, you know, that we had talked about earlier, some of those mm-hmm. you're betting at. Uh, okay. That's how I would go about it. Joe, what, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah. Um, a lot like what he said. So this past year we had a few more acorns, I think around here, Eastern Iowa, than what Justin said, but still not a big crop. So by mid to late, uh, not go, mid to late November, um, they were gone. Um, and the deer were back heavy on the, the crop field. Um, and I will say, I mean, a lot of people know this, but like you can tell immediately as if you're in farm country, you can tell immediately when the acorns are falling because the deer mm-hmm. disappear from the field. Yeah. You know? yep. There's no deer. Oh, well, you know, the acorns are falling. You don't need to even set foot in the woods to know that. So, um, so, you know, that's something I watch for. Um, and when they show back up, well, there's either not no acorns in the area or they eat them all up, you know, um, they show back up in the crop fields. Um, so like I saw starting in mid November, all of a sudden deer really, you know, they were, became way more visible in the crop field, um, feeding does and stuff. Um, uh, and, and that's actually, I found how I killed one of my bucks this past year is I found like the last spot, I think, um, that I knew about where there was, uh, still acorns in the ground in late November. And I killed a giant old monster deer, um, that, that, I don't know, I, I think he's eight years old. Um, I can't prove it, but I have a trail camera photo or two of him from several years ago and his teeth are worn flat to his gums. Um, so d- doing the, I mean, he's coming to acorns, um, and the does that were also drawn to that oak, that oak flat. Um, so, and that, that's, you know, late November post rut, um, or tail end of the rut, um, early season, everything's, you know, squished down. Most of the bucks are moving way less. Um, it gets tough in the real early season. One of the big things I've, I've struggled with is sometimes those bucks are bedding virtually with an eyesight where they're feeding. Um, and that's, you know, you find where they feed and, you know, you're in trouble already, uh, sometimes, but if at the same time, it can be real thick. So maybe they're bedded within a hundred yards of you. If you're finding, you know, you got a scrape nearby or you see a fresh rubber to and big tracks coming to a patch oak trees. Um, don't assume you spooked them. He might be bedded, you know, 80 yards away, but he hasn't seen you yet. So yeah, you, you can, you can have some uh, luck just scouting and blind um, when you know the area and you know where the oak trees are. Um, it does help a lot, obviously. And then you can mm-hmm. just, you know, you know how to get in, check the oak and be like, you know, are they falling? Are there any acorns? Um, is there, you know, buck sign? If there's not, you know, there might be, I really focus on those big tracks, just like you do, Justin. You know, the area might be tore up. There might be even rubs, but if I'm not finding those big tracks, I'm like, oh, there's probably a couple of little bucks running around. I'm not going to waste a hunt. I'm going to keep going. Um, and, uh, you know, try to find a big set of tracks. Or, you know, if I see a rub and it's real tall off the ground, that's, you know, something else to cue in on. Um, that's the fresh side of the season. Yeah. Do you see that generally, Joe, like with the, the smaller deer, the ones usually tearing the woods up 
Yep. 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 So, so around here it might be a little different because obviously we've got a fairly good air structure, but the two and three year olds tear the places up. Um, they just, um, if I, most of the time, if I walk into an area and, you know, and there's rubs everywhere, um, they aren't particularly high off the ground. A lot of guys get super excited and I'm like, eh, you know, I start looking, I want to see a big whopper set of tracks or a rub that's, you know, waist high on me and I'm a tall guy. Um, and then I'm like, oh, you know, and my, my nose starts twitching. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, for people, sorry, I'm going to quick follow up question just for people that are newer to this, that are maybe thinking what's a whopper set of tracks. How do you quantify that? What if you had to put some kind of measurement around that that would tell you like, yeah, that that's a big one. What would you tell someone? Oh, I don't. Um, so that varies by region of the country. Um, and it, you know, some, I know there's a rule of thumb or it's like, Oh, it's a four finger track. Well, I've got big hands. I'm just a large, large guy. I've got big hands and I've never seen a four finger track made by a deer. Like a four finger track is a, probably a bull elk on me. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, I, I've gone around a major track. So other guys don't need to do that, but like a big track for me, you know, if it gets to be two and a half inches or wider, um, and not splayed out, ignore those running tracks. You can get a big doe looking like a giant buck. If it's running, especially up, you know, down, down a hill or something. Um, I kind of ignore the splayed out tracks in soft ground. They all splay out. Um, but, in firmer ground, um, I want a standing or a walking track, you know, two and a half inches or wider for around here. And I think it varies. I think in some parts of the country, it might be bigger. Other parts of the country, probably not nearly that big. Um, that's a, that's a big buck. Um, and I will say I have seen a shock, like a majority, you find a big track, it's a big, big old deer, but, um, a high number of bucks that I've killed actually had doe size feet, um, <laughs> like big doe size feet. Um, not a majority, but like, I don't know, 30%, like, like way more than you'd think. Um, I, I killed a buck this year. Um, he weighed 240 pound field dressed mid November. And that deer, I have photos of his hoof and that deer had a, doe size hoof um and he had a huge body and he was a you know 170 plus inch 16 pointer and he had a doe size foot so they, they come in all shapes and sizes it's, and that's not that that's not a not like i've got i could pull up half a dozen other deer that i've killed that uh, were in similar but you find a big track that's a big buck you know that's still a rule uh so yeah cool justin well, were you trying to say something no, I, I mean, I agree. I think it absolutely varies on size, just like, uh, or on location, like Joe was saying, because I've seen it like you go from, you know, Missouri to Illinois, and there's an older age structure over there, and, and the tracks over there, the deer just, there's a there's a big difference in a big buck track in uh, Missouri versus Illinois, from, from my experience. But going back earlier, one question, Joe, when you had that, you killed that one buck going to Akron's. Did you know where he was betting at, or was that you just setting up on sign? Yeah, um, I was setting up on sign, but I knew the property, so I knew 
he was coming from his big overgrown kind of weed field um, that they like to bet in. Um, so it was a fallow field, like CRP, CRP but brushier. Um, so um, I figured he was coming up that ridge system from that. Sure enough, um, that's what you know he did. But I did. That was the first deer I've killed in a few years that I did not know about him really um, in advance. Um, it was. It, I was just. I was hunting more your style, where I was like, yeah, "This feels like a good spot." <laughs> that's a good feeling though i uh i've really come you know a lot of times the deer i kill around home like you know northern ohio michigan a lot of times i know the deer you know i have some familiar familiarity with them and it's cool and it's it's cool to learn that history but i really love that feeling like we had when we were younger when you you don't know what's out there and uh, yeah, that's I, that's what I get to experience when I travel, um, and I just love that the element of surprise. And you know, it's just if that if that buck makes my heart skip, you know, I'm I'm drawn back, and uh, I just really love that. That's a it's such a cool feeling, and a lot of with so much technology now these days, the cell cameras, and you know, people running all kinds of crap. It's like there's hardly any secrets left. You know what I mean? And I just yeah. I love. I love traveling and just leaving the cameras at home and just hunting off instinct and sign and shooting what, whatever gets me excited. Yeah. Yep. I agree there is that. definitely something to be said by that. Yeah. I keep threatening myself one of these years, I'm just going to leave all my cameras in the cupboard and mm-hmm. just do that. And I, I will It's just haven't done it yet. Well, so. you know what we got to do, Joe yeah. is we got to make a pact that one of these years, you and Dan Johnson promise not to use trail cameras on the <laughs> It will get you yeah. guys to promise it yeah. on the podcast, and then we'll yeah. see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's a perfect segue into my last question. Um, what is your guys' trail cam strategy in the hills? Um, where do you like to put them? how you like to check them. If it's a mix of leaving them out year round and some you check more frequently, what types of terrain features, scrapes, benches, saddles, give me the, give me the rundown of, of how you personally use, uh, truck cameras in the Hills. Justin. Um, yeah, it, it depends on a lot what you said there. Like if I'm, if it's one, I'm going to leave and, and I'll admit this, I got this from Joe, you know, I think his, his strategy is, is obviously sound. So, I've got to where, you know, the past four or five years, I've, I've left a lot of cameras out and uh, I'll put them in right in near buck bedding. Um, it may be on a ditch crossing, you know, or uh, a saddle leading out of a, a bowl, like I was talking about earlier, or some uh, something like that, some terrain feature in near the bedding area. And I'll just leave that in there for the majority of the season. I've actually got some cameras out now that I put out in late august and haven't been back to them yet so but the other ones i mean around fields and stuff like that ones i can flip in and check um you know i, I know we've talked about this before but the ones that you can get in like that that you're probably not going to get daylight pictures on but you're mm-hmm. just trying to see what's in the area or see if there is a mature buck in the area you know mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of them i'll throw up as i'm scouting if I see a big set of tracks 
you know, leading out into a field and I'll throw that camera up to try to get an idea of what it is. Um, I mean, yeah, a lot of it's terrain features. I like ditch crossings. I really like ditch crossings because it, you know, it funnels deer down. And a lot of times, too, you can, you can get a good idea of just looking at the tracks on the ditch crossing of what's moving through there. So for me, that would probably be the majority of my stroke camera placement right here at ditch crossing. Mm-hmm. How about you, Joe? Yeah, uh, I like ditch crossings, too. Um, so, yeah, if anybody hasn't heard my spiel, I really focus on leaving them soaked. I'm just like Justin. Like, I've got quite a uh, half a dozen cameras out yet. It's early January right now that I haven't. I've been slowly picking them up over the last few weeks. Um, but uh, um, I've got some cameras out, and... Um, I'll be looking at, you know, when bucks were, what time of year they were on camera. So I recognize the deer from past years, you know, and then all the weather conditions. Um, for these spots, I really like thermal hubs too. Um, I love sticking them down like in a thermal hub and figuring out, you know, what, what conditions and exactly thermal, they, they are, uh, very time of year. Um, like the, the, the annual pattern, there's really pretty consistent annual patterns with hubs and the, the deer buck activity through them. Um, usually within a few days every year, it lights up, boom. Um, some hubs, I mean, they, some, some hubs are used early season. Other hubs are, are more used during the rut. It depends uh, where the bedding lays out and uh, around them. But um, hubs are a really major part. Um, I used to have cameras in more easy access areas and I'd still have a, know, a couple, um, here and there, but I don't anymore. And it's really just cause of time. Um, my time's so limited. Uh, I, I just, um, that's, that's been the struggle as both of you have kind of shared a little bit. I, I struggle to get out there and I have such limited time. Um, you know, I, whatever, hunted seven or eight times this year uh, with a bow <laughs> and it stressed me out. Like that's pretty pathetic over the course of two months. Um, and, uh, I don't have time to stop and check a camera. Like I'll, I'll still speed scout, you know, once or twice a week, but like just if I have a camera, that's one more thing I got to do. So I've almost entirely now. And yeah, I'll check a camera while speed scouting, but um, I don't want it to be an extra thing. So I'll just, um, you know, 90% of my cameras are, I hang them and I start hanging them in July, August, by September, I want them all out. And most of them aren't going to get touched until December. So um, that's just kind of how it works. Um yeah, yeah, that's 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 pretty much my and and um and hopefully Dan Johnson is listening. I'll tell a quick story about another buck I screwed up on. Um in early November. I was after this great big white eight pointer. Um and he was um he this he, I knew where he was betting, he's down in an oxbow uh, on public land and he was coming in and out of there. Um he'd coming out and out of there pretty consistent the previous year. Um, and I, and, um, I figured he was still alive. Um, and I went down there and I hunted and I saw him, I, 
I plan on hunting a full day. Well, work called my name and I could only hunt the morning. Um, and I saw him that morning from a distance and my gut, I had to climb down at noon and my gut said, Joe, you're making a mistake. But I, I just could not stay in the tree. And I picked that camera up in December and half an hour after I climbed down and I did not check. So I bring the story up because I did not check that camera. That camera is 30 yards from my stand, but I had to cross a bunch of trails, check that camera. And I did not, I left it there. I could see it from my stand half an hour after I climbed down that darn buck came through and Mm -hmm. I could have killed him. So that one probably burns more than any other uh, encounter I've had this year. So I, you know, yeah, I've, I've, had, I've heard that story and, you know, you sneer at people that climbed down too early. Well, this year was me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, What you pulled off, though, this year in such limited time with a bow uh, during bow season is just, I mean, just incredible. I mean, you killed yeah. you killed two awesome bucks. I know it was a frustrating year for you, but, yeah. man, just uh, great stuff. I, Mark, you got any other questions for these guys? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say first off, um, awesome work, uh, all three of you guys, as far as having a hell of an interesting conversation. I've, I have really enjoyed kicking back and listening and just enjoying this as a listener, really. Um, but I do want to give you guys an opportunity for one last thought. And, and this is something I, I like to ask people on occasion. If, if I were to give you a, a billboard on the side of the highway and you could put any simple message there for hunters. And let's say we're going to stick with a hill country theme. So if you could leave one last parting bit of wisdom that you had to put on a billboard, this could be one thing you want everyone to do or, or one thing that everyone should, you know, remember, or one thing that you don't want people to screw up on. Um, and if you could synthesize it down to that one simple phrase you would put on that billboard, um, what would that be? And I'm actually going to ask you, Andy, as well. Um, so, so Joe, tell me what would your hill country billboard side of the highway be? Oh man. Um, I'd probably keep it pretty big and, and, you know, find your own way. Um, I, I, I think that's more important than any, you know, the details you look, look at, the differences between Andy and myself and Justin, you know, yeah, there's overlap, but like, um, you know, um, or, or stick to the basics. That's another one, I guess. Can I get two billboards? Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, Buy one, get one, one free on here. Side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, something like that. Um, look at like Zach Farrenbaugh with the hunting public. Um, I just love how he hunts. I, uh, you know, it's completely different. And I, how I hunt, um, he sneaks around and even crazier than Justin seems like, or maybe he just carries a camera. Maybe Justin does, you know, does the same thing, but, um, you know, he's just on his feet all the time. He's not standing very much like he's, and he's, you know, having crazy good luck in many different States. Um, you know, and he's learned through woodsmanship and attention to detail and it's completely different than the strategy I've found that works for me. So, um, you know, Try new stuff, listen to new, listen to different people, but really, you know, try to find what works for you. So. 
That's a hell of a lot of billboards now, Joe. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> uh, what about you, uh, Justin? You got any idea? Well, Joe kind of stole my my answer there. I was going to say <laughs> in season. I was going to say in season scouting because for me, yeah. I have seen my success go through the roof by not being complacent, not just going out and finding a buck bed and then hunting near that buck bed or finding big sign or what you know whatever it be and just being complacent and hunting that to death or hunting you know when i get the opportunity just on that spot that i may have found two weeks ago because we all know so many things are happening out there i mean it's it's changing day by day so i would say in season i like it and andy what do you got yeah yeah i think i think my answer stems from the fact that i typically have hunted uh well pretty much all of my hill country experience has been during the rut but mine's gonna say 10 to 2 10 o'clock to 2 p.m yeah Uh, i have had during the rut um that time frame has been my most successful for seeing big deer on their feet um more so than in any other type of terrain uh, my mornings tend to be a little slow. My evenings tend to be a little slow, and that's probably because of where I'm sitting. Uh, but, man, that midday time frame, you know, when the conditions and, and the timing of year is is right, just deadly. So keep your yep. butt in the tree, 10 to 2. 10 to 2. Well, you definitely win for uh, keeping it nice and tight and billboard-sized, Andy, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh this has been this has been great, guys. All three of you. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, I learned a lot in this one. I'm I'm excited to listen to it again and think through everything. A lot of great stories to review, and uh, I know a lot of people are going to come out the other end of this one uh, with something to work on and something to chew on. So uh, thank you all. And uh, I know it's only January right now as we're speaking, but uh, good luck in about nine months or whenever your next hunting season kicks off. <laughs> Yeah, it's kicking off right now. You know, my my season ended January 10th, so I think uh, both of these other guys are in the same boat. Like this, this is where we earn the next year. So that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good stuff right there. Great parting words. All right, that was a conversation, wasn't it? I mean, there was some really good stuff in there. Probably one of those episodes you need to listen to a time or two to collect it all and to make sense of it all. But, uh, man, I'm, I'm thrilled with how that turned out and excited for some of these other shows to come. Stay tuned on all that. Uh, next week, we're hoping to have another one of these Habitat deep dives, so so stay tuned. Make sure you're following Wired Hunt on Instagram and Facebook. We're going to be posting more updates there, as well as the Whitetail Weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday with the latest content from myself and other people on the Mediator team that are focused on Whitetail stuff. So uh, check it out. Stay tuned. Thank you for your time and attention. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.